I believe in the United States of America. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And to the Republic. In one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. One nation. One God. I therefore believe it is my duty to my country to love it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. To support its constitution. Stand for the word of God. To obey its laws. It is essential that we obey God's law. A good government protects and provides for the people. As meeting the material needs of the masses through the full power of centralized government. My God shall supply all your needs. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to Our Foundations Podcast. My name is Joshua and with me today is Norman Horn for another interview related to these topics we're covering in Season 2. So this time what I want to cover is things related to this comparison of the historic church and the modern state. So we've covered everything from corruption to history to Reformation theology, Catholic theology, education systems, technology, all kinds of stuff. And I really want to get a little more into this main comparison here that really is kind of the foundation for these two time periods. The historic church is what grounded society during that time period around the Reformation, and the modern state is really what grounds society today in our age. And so Norman Horn is a very good person for this, I believe, because (laughs) he definitely covers both um, theology and the religious aspect of this, the Christian side of things, as well as the state and political theory, more on the libertarian side. So if you would, would you go ahead and tell us basically who you are, um, what the Libertarian Christian Institute is, and what you talk about on your show as well? Sure, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, this is a, it's definitely an honor to be here and to, to discuss these very important topics with you. Uh, as you. As you requested a little bit about myself, I'll kind of give you the background about where, what we're all about. Um, a number of years ago, I started a little website called libertarianchristians.com, kind of in the uh, wake of the election of President Obama uh, at, at the end of 2008. And uh, that it grew very quickly because it was a, frankly, I think I feel it was kind of a needed voice in the libertarian community at the time and, and still continues to be over the years. It got a lot of support and eventually it became evident that we needed to uh, kind of codify what the, what the site could be in a, in an even greater fashion. And so we formed it into a, a nonprofit, uh, which now has a, a number of volunteers and people that are associated with it, as well as a number of wonderful donors who help support the work, which is uh, very, very simply to equip the church to promote a free society. Uh, we believe that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. And so we try to, to you know, teach that to everybody that we can, in particular people within the church, but also even to libertarians out there who may not necessarily be believers. Uh, we hope to, you know, both honor God in this way and to make the world better uh, by by teaching people solid theology about what it means to interact in a world where violence is endemic to the way things run. And so we offer an alternative. We want to show people a, a different way of thinking about being neighborly uh, amongst people that they may not even know. 
and, and in particular to reduce the power of the state in those interactions. Yeah, yeah, that definitely sounds like a very good combination. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so my podcast in particular is not necessarily religious at all, although I have covered, uh, obviously, with this parallel I'm doing between the historic church and the modern state, there is religion involved. Absolutely. And I've talked about, yeah, I've talked about theology from both points of view, the Catholic side and the reformer side. And um, most of what I cover is related more to history and government corruption and economics and all kinds of stuff, political theory. But um, so for the listeners here that probably are not as familiar with why people feel so strongly about the Christian religion, um, I think a lot of people, when they look back at this time period of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and the Reformation, and even into the Enlightenment, that it, it kind of seems like these people might have been either a little backwards, or maybe that religion was just culturally ingrained into them and their society. They were told that God exists, and this is who God is, and this is what you do, period, so they did it. And um, to a degree, this did play out some once people were able to get the Bible written in their own language. There were people that read it and decided, hey, you know, this isn't really what I believe. I don't agree with some of this stuff. And some people did have objections there, but a lot of people didn't. And we had a lot of philosophers as well as theologians that came out and gave some very intellectual arguments for why they believed in a God and why they believed that God was the Christian God. So could you lay out just a little bit for us on uh, more of a logical perspective on why people would buy into this whole religion thing? Well, certainly there's there's a lot of, of things to unpack there. Um, certainly there are you know, as you mentioned, logical reasons to believe, and as well as just cultural ones. You mentioned that, you know, it, it, whether it's we're considering now or we're considering the past, uh, a lot of religion is culturally ingrained, and that's the way they initially come to know it. Uh, often, logical reasons become uh, incorporated into that over time as they begin to work out what they believe. Um, but but there's there's a little bit of all of it in there. Why might one have a reason to believe? Well, there's there's certainly many ways to conceive of re reasons why you should believe in God, um, whether those are uh, the you could say like a moral argument, like how do we know that anything is good at all uh, from a naturalist perspective? That doesn't really make any sense, um, you know, from if you if you assume that uh, everything is, is unguided uh, from natural causes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be able to say why something is good or bad. Those words don't really have any meaning as it pertains to, you know, just the way things work out in that respect. So the fact that we have these types of moral instincts, these types of moral intuitions about what is good and what is evil, and we, and we are very passionate about those things, uh, whether or not you believe in God, uh, initially, you still have those intuitions. Uh, and and that is in, in part an evidence for why, well, perhaps that came from someone who is ultimately the arbiter of what is good. Uh, and that's that, that argument is, is very much in line with uh, an author that many people know, which is uh, C.S. Lewis's moral argument. Uh, yeah. but, but there are others as well, argue, arguments from design, arguments from, uh, you, might, you might call it the first cause argument that you know, that uh, an infinite regression of causes uh, ultimately must lead to a first cause, and that uh, must be then a, a supreme being, that being God. And so those okay. many, many times you'll see this, you know, 
outlined in uh, in in you know medieval uh, even medieval philosophy, and we we get a lot of that handed down from there. But I think it's important to realize as well that you know when it comes down to like say the way in which uh, the early Christians believed that that wasn't really like the compelling thing that you know, people didn't start off by going like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to work out here. What are my logical reasons for believing? And then I'm going to figure out which religion is best or something like something like that. You know, in fact, even now, if I came up with 20 different arguments logically for why one should believe, ultimately that may not really cause somebody to believe. Whereas in fact, you know, the, we, the way we come to know God even is rather different. I mean, for instance, I don't know. Josh, are you married? I, uh, I am. Oh, you are. So if I asked you, for instance, prove to me that your wife loves you. You yeah. would have kind of a difficult time doing that. Even yeah. though you are 100% convinced that she does. I'm pretty sure. Yes, <laughs> right? I, <am. laughs> I mean, yeah. So it, it's not entirely unlike that. Uh, the way that we come to know or, or the, our way of knowing in this case, um, this supreme being that is God is not one of purely evidentiary uh, knowledge. It's rather one that comes from a, a personal knowledge. Uh, and so this is actually a, a crucial reason, uh, for instance, why, why Jesus as God being on earth as one of us is so crucial to the Christian faith. Uh, that that and that's why we talk about even you know maybe some of your your Christian you, you know listeners will probably know this phrase some who are not Christian may not have heard this but or maybe they have I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for instance what does that mean how do you have this how does that work at all uh, when it's somebody you haven't physically met in the same location or something like that well that's kind of the point though. Uh, is that the, this way of knowing res, is not one that is just, well, I have X axioms leading in premises that lead to a number of, of uh, y, y plus Z, you know, uh, uh, additional statements that now leads me to, con, you know, conclusion A, now I believe in God. Like, it doesn't work like that. Um, yeah. and, and so when people say like, well, you know, I... <laughs> What what encouragement would you give to somebody who's, who's kind of thinking about this and wondering? I'd say, like, well, just come walk with me for a while, man. Let's experience life together, and and uh, and you'll be able to see uh, and experience the way that God acts in in and around us. And so that yeah. that, that transcends logic, if you will. It doesn't mean there are no logical reasons, but it's more than that. That would make sense. Well, and ideally, Christians well, hopefully it would... makes more than sense. <laughs> yes, yes, hopefully so. <laughs> um, yeah, and ideally, Christians would do exactly as you say. If you were to walk with any Christian, you would see how they are living out these principles and the things that are taught in the Bible and uh, uh, moral uh, good, as far as a moral perspective is concerned. They are living out ethically what they believe, but... Unfortunately, that's not always what we see. Right. And uh, one of the prime examples here that I'm covering in season two is this parallel between the historic church around the time of the Reformation and the modern state. We see in both of those that ideally 
they should be very good things for society. Ideally, the church should be upholding these types of values that you just mentioned. They should be taking care of the poor and feeding the hungry and helping maintain morality within society and all these kinds of things. Just like today, the state should be helping the poor and maintaining morality and all the very similar types of things. But we see in reality, that's not really how it plays out. Um, so uh, along with that, and maybe some positives, if you can come up with some, what are some of the similarities that you see between the historic church and the modern state today? Wow, there's, there's, some, there's some really interesting things to tease out from there. But I think the best way to start with that is to really go back to the early Christians, those people who were the, the earliest followers of Jesus uh, in the first century. And it's notable there that in no way, shape, or form did these people have political power. Uh, and that constitutes the biggest difference, I think, between the, the historic church and the modern state, is that on the one hand, the people of Jesus, the followers of the way, those early Christians, uh, were committed to being servants in a way that did not require them to exert force upon anyone uh, to accomplish what their goals were, which were to honor God and to, and to ultimately uh, better themselves even as a result of being more human through the, through the saving uh, act of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, so they believed that, that you know, in, in, for lack of better words, that uh, the, way, the way in which they previously were was not, was not full and complete, uh, that they were, they were incomplete people without Jesus. Uh, and that, that Jesus' gospel, that way of life, uh, changed who they were and made them uh, completely different people. And so that's kind of important to recognize. Now, the difference there between that and the state, obviously, is that the state, while purporting to have certain desires that would conform to some of the other desires of, say, the early Christians, uh, what's required uh, for them to do that? Well, they are required in the modern state. They have to have an apparatus of force available to, to them to accomplish any of their goals. It doesn't, it doesn't operate in any other way. And so... Unfortunately, over time, that attitude amongst the early Christians, uh, perhaps we would say, you know, degraded. And it, it kind of begins um, the, with the, uh, with the uh, rise of Emperor Constantine in the, in the Roman Empire, of course, uh, where by making Christianity not only legal, you know, keep in mind that, you know, prior to, prior to uh, Constantine, at least you know, going back of uh, generations there, you know, Christianity was illegal, even though it was growing by leaps and bounds. You could be, obviously you could be killed for, for proclaiming a belief in Jesus um, because Jesus said, you know, he, he, Jesus claimed to be Lord that Caesar was not. And that ran up against the political power of their time. It yeah. was a threat in many respects to them. At least they believed it was, even though realistically they were not, they were never rebels. They were not uh, usurpers, per se. They just proclaimed a different way of life, <laughs> which that's a threat to them. So Constantine, though, legalizing Christianity and, uh, and also basically making it the official religion of the Roman Empire kind of began a, a turning point. And that's not to say there weren't any good results of that. I mean, it was still, 
important as a uh, as a you know just a fact of history uh, that that uh, that things began to change even at that point you know in, in good ways too. But one of the negative aspects was that the tie between you know throne and altar uh, began began to grow. And to the point at which, you know, down the line, you have the Holy Roman Empire and and the uh, the, the the very political nature of the of the Roman Catholic Church for some time. Um, and, and much of that was was not good. Uh, but, you know, that so you see this growing influence of the state upon the church at that point, And it became this very incestuous type of relationship, very, very uh, problematic. The Reformation then, of course, began to, uh, you know, reverse some of those trends. Although it wasn't perfect either, there were plenty of there were plenty of reformers who just wanted to. Well, perhaps they had good motives in some ways, and not realizing that it, some of their motives in other places were were poor. Um, but you still saw the use of force and the and the uh, the use of essentially state religion, uh, the state be trying to you know take take upon itself the trappings of Christianity in various ways and coming up with theological justifications for their existences and so on and so forth. And it's really only been in the last few hundred years that, that that is truly getting repudiated uh, by the bulk of Christians in one way or another. And I think it's, you know, kind of apropos to kind of point out here that uh, the, those who take upon themselves the idea of, uh, shall I say, Christian libertarian ideas um, are kind of, I think, a culmination of that in many respects, that we're finally saying that not only, you know, should we're reclaiming, I should say, the, the early Christian attitude toward the state, that there is an antipathy there, that the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of the world, and the state is not the kingdom of God. That's it. And, uh, and so that's, I think that, you know, where, where there are these similarities that you'll see uh, and, and little convergence points where the where the the states of uh, the the nation states that developed in from Constantine onward, uh, you know, have the trappings of Christianity in certain respects, and and even the modern state, you know, wants to have certain goals that would might conform in some ways to Christian goals at times. Uh, that they're very different things, of course. And in fact, I I'd, I'd venture to argue um, that the modern state. Uh, is really wants to take upon itself uh, essentially godlike qualities, and in fact, I'd I'd even further argue that in many respects the modern state claims more power than God on some level because it wants <laughs> like I mean the modern state says you know we can birth you and feed you and provide you a job and educate you and protect you and make sure that we I mean if, heck the <laughs> I mean. The, the modern state, the United States and the EU think that they can control climate if they just regulate enough. Like that's, that's incredible. Like, I mean, of all things that God claims to have power over, it might be the weather. I mean, <laughs> true. <laughs> and, so, and so, and so it's just kind of ironic on some level that, that uh, the state just takes upon itself per it's per into its purview. So many different aspects of life and the universe. It's just crazy. Uh, when they when they try to do that, so yeah, yeah. Hopefully that kind of 
is a long-winded way of getting to what you're going for, though. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. And there's a few things I want to pull out there that, that I thought of as you were talking about that stuff. So you talked about how the original church, the very early church, was not a political entity and how they kind of had this more, what we would think of as an idealist kind of perspective where you should actually love your neighbor, your well, friend, me, and your enemy. Let me interrupt you just for a second, just to be clear. I don't, I, I, if I said it's not a political entity, I probably should have been a little more clear. Because the, the implications of the gospel are, do have political implications. Like there are political implications to the gospel. Um, but it was not a political entity in the sense of create, like a modern state is a political entity. I guess okay, that, does that make yeah. better sense then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that still actually fits even better. So okay. um, when you have that and you have this um, kind of idealized version of how you're supposed to live and how these early Christians did live and they fully believed it, it's not just that we idealize that and that's not how it really was. It seems historically that that's exactly how the early church was. And that was a very good thing. Um, and we see the same, especially in America, when you look at the birth of our current nation state, we have um, the Declaration of Independence and the Founding Fathers, and that is something that is also very idealized in people today, and a lot of what uh, I would say the Declaration of Independence Founding Fathers believed were fairly in line with libertarian ideals and with freedom and liberty, and they were, I think from a Christian perspective, fairly moral. They were a political entity, but they didn't necessarily want to act as an overbearing, forceful political entity. They more wanted to be a political body that would keep people from being interfered with by politics, in a sense. And so they didn't have, uh, at least the original plan, was not to have a standing army, not to have forced taxation. Um, all the different regions had full autonomy in most every way. And so that, that ends up being very different than what we see today, just like the early Christians are definitely very different than what we see out of the uh, Catholic Church in the 1500s, for example. And so there are definitely some parallels here. You mentioned this, this combination of a relationship between throne and altar and how the church and the state basically combined and how that added to the corruption. And it was kind of this this infusion, this unholy infusion. And uh, the comparison that I make in season two of this show is that the nobility of the past would be, um, it would have some comparisons to the corporate world of today, to corporations. And we also see this unholy mixture of the corporate world and the state today. We have crony capitalism, that is the economic rule of the land, so to say, and that is how things run in today's society. And it, it definitely, there are definitely some um, similarities in how these things play out in their histories, how it starts off more idealized, how it becomes corrupted, how other aspects and entities come and get molded into this structure. And it basically becomes unrecognizable from what it was originally. And then often you have some either reformation or revolution moments that happen in history. And that is a common trend that we do see. So uh, those are things that stood out to me as well as you mentioned the, that the modern state is similar to the role that God should play for the Christian. And I was thinking of things like, well, you you do sing songs to worship God and to worship <laughs> the state. You do pledge your allegiance to yep, God or yep. to the state. 
um, you do look to the state to take care of all of your needs in society, just like you would look to God to take care of all of your needs as a Christian. And yeah, it just goes on and on that that is the modern state is the modern version of God. If you follow uh, Nietzsche, for example, God is dead. And um, according to his philosophy, that was not necessarily a good thing. He felt like God was dead and he was seeing that, that society that we killed him, that through these movements and intellectual movements that have happened, a lot of society doesn't believe in God anymore. And at least what many people would say is that Nietzsche's view was that something should replace that, that that's not a good thing, that we lost our our sense of morality, our sense of ethic, our purpose. And he felt like something should step in and fill that. We need to find something. And his view was to find that from an intellectual perspective instead of a religious perspective. But he felt like something should fill that gap. And we end up with something that did fill that gap. But it, it's not very idealistic at all. We end up with a corrupt modern state. And so, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the way it is, which is not very good, but that's what we have. And so with that, I do want to get into a little more about how people, how people interacted between the holy book that they read, the Bible, the scriptures, and how that related to politics, because we're talking about these two things, about theology and political theory and how those intertwined. And in addition to these broad parallels between the institutions and these shifts that happened historically and that are happening today, there is also a direct pairing between theology and political philosophy. And that's something that you, it seems, definitely have a lot of expertise in. That's something that you cover a lot on your show, is this relationship between theology and the state. And so one of the big things that I see in the Reformation is that you had, uh, let's say Luther is the main stereotype. He looked at scriptures and found that some of the theology there, some of the things that are written there, don't really correspond with what the church was actually doing. And he felt like, it needed to be reformed, hence the Reformation. And from there, you have many different people that are looking at the exact same book, the exact same set of scriptures, and coming to many different conclusions, that it's either a divine right of kings to rule over us all, or the Anabaptist view that basically there should be no state and you go off in a community by yourself, isolate yourself, and you're not under the authority of the state at all and everywhere in between. But they're all looking at this same set of teachings to justify their views and fully believe these views. So could you talk a little bit about how people interpret politics from scripture and kind of how this plays out? Oh, sure. Well, and you kind of laid it out, you know, the, the entire spectrum you will find uh, throughout church history. And it's no surprise that people will, you know, come to different conclusions about the state from the Bible. I mean, considering that, you know, uh, any given view uh, from the Bible has some variations on uh, on itself uh, be, when when different Christians come to the to the Scripture to read it. We have a, a you know a variety of beliefs that we consider normative, uh, are are absolute dogmas for the faith, and we we don't compromise on that at all. And then there there are those things like a theology of the state, which uh, there's definitely more debatable points. And regardless of how, uh, regardless of what conclusions we come to there, we still have to you know accept our brethren and and recognize that you know 
even if even if my uh, my some of my some of my brethren or don't believe like I do in exactly this way, they're still my brothers and sisters in the faith, and I am not going to uh, betray them and 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 try to to declare them to be outside of the brotherhood uh, as a result of that. So I just want to make that clear up front. Um, now that being said, if I didn't think that this was the best way, or that my that my views in particular were the were the best way of interpreting scripture, I would change them. <laughs> There's that too, yeah. <laughs> but but there are there are a variety of views out there, and um, and some of them are wor- are definitely worse than others. You know, you have those that um, you know wanted to they they you call them call it the divine right of kings, and which uh, kind of looks at the state as being ordained by God, uh, not not just as a as a matter of um, this is part of God's will that this is like this is the way the. Uh, the way thing, the way things are, are are not outside of the will of God. That, that all of this is within God's plan, but not not just merely saying that, but rather everything that the king does is justified because God set him up to do, uh, you know, with that right to do whatever he wanted. So there's a big difference there if, in the way one thinks about it, and that's kind of the the epitome of that divine right of kings. Now, that that the state can do whatever it wants because well. You know, God told it to do whatever it wants, and everything it does, it wants to do, is thus right. Well, and that, and the funny thing about that is that you know, even though we don't really have a divine right of kings view in the modern era anymore, because we don't really have uh, much in the way of of legit kings and queens, even even in the modern monarchies, there often are parliaments and whatnot. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the belief that kind of well. You know, God put it there so it can do whatever it wants, and that's okay. Is still actually somewhat prevalent. Um, it just it's in a slightly different wording, if you will. And the uh, and that's and that comes in you know in various forms. You'll see things like, um, but you'll you'll see this whether it's in uh, in, in say like Zimbabwe, uh, which where Robert Mugabe uh, Mugabe Mugabe yeah Robert Mugabe uh, tried to you know basically justify whatever his, his government wanted to do on the basis that Romans thirteen gave him the right to do it, which has literally happened, <laughs> uh, yeah. or even or even Christians in America saying well it's totally fine that we're going after countries in the Middle East and and doing regime changes and whatnot because look we're like this is the way God set it up to be America is supposed to do this well that's kind of like divine right of kings kind of rearing its ugly head um and so i think that's kind of relevant here but really the more the more important i think thing for us uh, to realize as christians is that there is a better way of thinking about it and that's that you know realizing that the kingdom of god is not the state uh and that you know that the that really um our you know there is no special privilege of position that comes about because you happen to hold uh, a title whether it's representative, king, queen, soldier, policeman, whatever, uh, you're all held under the same moral standard. And if that's the case, what does that moral standard mean? Uh, you know, what what does it entail for all of us? You know, who are just trying to interact and make our way through this world together. Well, the impetus from Scripture and and from church tradition, broadly speaking, is that we we're not to initiate violence against each other. That the way we're supposed to interact is not via uh, the, the use of force constantly, but rather uh, by the use of service, by looking to serve one another in various ways. Now, that's, that's, the, anti- that's the antithesis of the state, but it's, it is the complete convergence of the market. 
uh, where in the marketplace, uh, where, you know, uh, where we, where we trade goods and we try to, we literally are trying to serve each other in the best way that we can. And if we're not, then we're trying to steal from them. But what is that again? That's looking like the state because the state has to steal in order to operate. So in every way that I can see, at least the, 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 those who are would be considered, I would say, the status among us, those who would try, try to kind of purport to maintain a, a, a modified divine right of kings, believe that they have the right to initiate violence against others in order to accomplish uh, in, in their own ends. Whereas the, the, the true Christian way of thinking is one where we don't use violence to accomplish our ends, but rather we seek to serve each other. And it's the difference between the market and the state. And it's yeah. pretty, pretty simple as that. Yeah, and I will I will question your views on the market later. Um, I will first question your views on religion here. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, first I do want to say that you mentioned how people did back up their view of the state and this right to rule out of Scripture, and they believed that God ordained these rulers to rule over everybody, and they used that as a justification to do whatever they wanted. And I, I would say the modern parallel to that is that today, instead of theology ruling over just about every aspect of life and society, like it did in the time period of the Reformation, the Middle Ages, today, politics rules over just about every aspect of society. And if we look back to the uh, scriptures, so to say, from our modern politics and our modern view of the state, I would say that would be Enlightenment philosophy, to uh, get broad with it at least. And according to the Enlightenment philosophy, those ideals, um, the modern state should exist, it should rule, and it should uh, take care of all of these different aspects of society that it does. So we use our politics to justify the existence of the state, just like um, in this historic time they use their theology to justify the position of the state. And there are definitely some similarities there going on, and neither one really, I would argue, play out very well if you go too in-depth with them, but on surface level, they sound good. So um, to question your religious point of view here and your interpretation of Scripture, the mm -hmm. Bible does say, I have read this myself, I know it's there, the <laughs> Bible does clearly say that you should pay your taxes and obey authorities and that God is sovereign over the political powers and put them in place for a reason. And um, yeah, you've got Romans 13 that you mentioned there that talks about these types of things. Sure. However, at the same time, like you've pointed out, the state is clearly not in line with the biblical teachings of, let's say, Jesus, where you are to serve others, you are to be sacrificial in how you deal with other people. If someone offends you, you are to turn the other cheek, not respond in violence or um, in the same manner that they uh, initiated that action upon you. And a lot of these things are the complete opposite of the state. You have the Beatitudes, I know, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where you have, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, these are not adjectives I would use in describing the state. And so it, this seems like a contradiction between the Bible saying, on one hand, you are to live this way, and that's a very peaceful, nonviolent way where you're serving others. And then on the other hand, it says that you should give money to this uh, institution that claims a monopoly on force that lives out a complete opposite way. So can you uh, help me out with this contradiction there? Absolutely. So first of all, I'll say everything I'm about to say is encapsulated in a... Uh 
in an article that I've written called New Testament Theology of the State. You can find that on libertarianchristians.com. Uh, the, so I'm going to go from kind of reverse order of what you said. So regarding ordination and, you know, God put, did God put the state in place and, and that ordination is, is, uh, is justifies its rightness in a sense. It's kind of what, what you're the, the contra view of what, you know, perhaps what you're kind of suggesting is like, is this, is this, is this a contradiction here? Um, and the answer to that is that that's not really the point of what Paul's saying there. In that chapter, in particular, R- Paul is speaking to the Roman Christians, people, you know, Christians who are living in Rome at the time, where they're wondering, what is my proper relationship under my newfound freedom in Christ that you've just been talking about, Paul, uh, given that I'm also living in Rome? That claims that that its emperor claims that it's a, that he is a god, and that the, and that they have tremendous power over this geographical area to do you know pretty much whatever they want. Well, how should I interact with this? And Paul is basically offering a prudential argument for how one should interact. That is to say, that yeah, you probably don't want to just you know, waltz up to the, you know, whenever, whenever the, the tax collector comes up and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not going to pay this tax. Ha ha. You know, checkmate Roman tax collector. Um, because what that would constitute at that time would be, they would be considered rebels. They would be considered, uh, you know, criminals in the eyes of the, of that state. And what that would result in would be them getting killed. And that wouldn't do so much to keep expanding the kingdom of God at that time. Now, what's their primary mission? To expand the kingdom of God at that time. So what they realized, is, and this is Paul's encouragement, you know, with the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, as we believe, to tell the Roman Christians is that you're, it is the better part of valor, it's the prudential thing to do, to realize that you know, our, our kingdom uh, is not of this world, and that instead it's, a, it's just appropriate to pay, their, to pay the taxes as they are. Uh, and that's and to just and to when asked, uh, you know, to to uh, to submit in this respect, to just do so, because it, it, the alternative is not so great. Now that's an interpretation, and that's one that I think I've supported very well in my writings, and you'll find other people beyond me who make the same type of argument. Um, and that so you I, that might be my encouragement to your listeners to you know think deeply about that. Uh, and and go and go and kind of study that in more detail. It's not something that can just be explained in really in just a couple minutes. I'm doing the best I can here, but there's a lot more to it that you can grab it that you can get into. Uh, for instance, the, I think the the you know the uh, the next thing that one would probably want to to elucidate at that point would be you know well why that instead of something else, uh, and what other part of scripture you know kind of would lead you to this type of of belief. And I think the the key point here is probably goes back to Matthew chapter five, uh, where in the in when Jesus was tempted by Satan, uh, that one of those temptations was basically Satan offering him the kingdom of the world, if 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 Jesus would just bow down and worship uh, Satan at that time, and that's interesting because the way in which Jesus responds is not like a is not what you would expect if if the divine right of kings view. Uh, or even the way that some people want to interpret Romans 13, were correct. Uh, because 
if that were, if what a lot of people say about the state would be true, then Jesus would have just laughed at Satan and said, well, gee, you know, those kingdoms, I set those up anyway. You know, God is, God's totally in control of that in the sense, in, in every sense of the word, everything they do is right. And so you're telling me what to do here. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like, I already got all that. It's already part of me or something to that effect. Right. But that's not what he says. Not at all. In fact, instead, Jesus recognizes that that political power is not appropriate for him. It's not appropriate for anybody. Uh, that's not the way of that's not the way of uh, of God. And instead, rebukes him, and, and of course, uh, and says, you know, well, obviously, you know, uh, I'm, I'm commanded, you know, worship the Lord and serve Him only. That's the response that we should even have toward uh, toward the veneration of the state. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we, <laughs> you see, you see in today's modern age, the singing of almost hymns toward the state and de- declaring allegiance to it and so on and so forth. Whereas our response as Christians should be, nope, no, we worship the Lord and serve him only. Okay. Well, th- and that does fall in line, I guess, with the biblical teaching of loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. And we would oh, just sure. apply that. Yeah, we are, we're applying that to the state, saying that the state is the enemy. And even though the Bible says to submit to the state and pay your taxes, that there are many reasons for this and that it's a little bit of a deeper issue. And that the overriding principle is that even though the state may not necessarily be legitimate from an ideal aspect of what a godly society should look like, you are still to submit and you are still to love your enemy and you are still to play this role that you are supposed to play here on earth of service. And so, yes, I guess that does uh, fall in line fairly well. Um, So with these different views on politics, and obviously people interpret these things many different ways and they get many different results. And that was one of the main roles of the church historically, pre-Reformation, definitely, over the universal church at the time. And that's what they did is they helped interpret what scripture means. And they would interpret something like Romans 13, where it says submit to the state. And they would help the Christians of the day to better understand what this means so that they wouldn't get um, as off track as many people would believe that other denominations did in the future. And so I I think that you would probably be more of a proponent of a decentralized structure coming from the more libertarian side of the political argument. And so, (laughs) okay. And I I don't believe that you're part of the Catholic church. Would that be correct? No, no, I am not. I'm a Protestant. Okay. So you're in line with the reformers and in line with the decentralized state. So you are perfect for this. So, um, (laughs) Oh, well, we can't about perfect, but let's okay, you're, you're I'll good. Run you're... With, I'll run with it though. So. Okay, okay, good enough. Let's say yeah, that. Good enough. <laughs> Hopefully, better than that. But um, <laughs> the point is that we see that there is an obvious role of the church here that is an important role to play to help keep people in line um, as far as not go- going too far off the rails and to keep a structure around these things. And we see the same thing with the state today of keeping a structure over society, making sure that people don't overstep their bounds and run around in the streets and kill everybody. Um, there, that there needs to be a role there of somebody, something that is helping to guide things. And so we see this contradiction between having, we use the church example first, between having the institutional church that is the arbiter of truth 
and interprets scripture and guides the church, um, that is very different than having individual Christians read the Bible and be led to certain interpretations and believe what they are going to believe in these, you know, who knows how many thousand different denominations that exist today, um, very decentralized. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of having a centralized source like the church or the state that would be an arbiter of truth or an arbiter of rights and the opposite view of having a decentralized version where people uh, make independent choices depending on how they view these things? Wow, there's a lot to unpack there because <laughs> because there's, you know, there centralization is often just a big danger in, in a lot of different fields. And, and to an extent, we have to even say that, that theology is not, uh, is one of those fields as well in which total centralization might actually be a, 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 a bad thing. Um, it would be great if all Christians believe the same exact same thing on some level, I, I think. And, and, and to, for what it's worth, you know, we do have, what you might call, you know, the dogmas of the faith. Like you're not going to find a Christian uh, as such that, that doesn't believe in, you know, the, the person of Jesus and how he, and Jesus came to earth and died and was buried and was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God. Like that, that is, is central to who we are. Um, but then beyond that, as there, as we try to elucidate various things about, you know, why th- why is uh, why are things the way they are? Uh, what what are what is one to believe about topic X? Uh, there's there's going to have to be some room for disagreement because otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll just <laughs> if we don't have room for disagreement, then we'll all be at each other's throats trying to fa- trying to you know demand who gets to believe what. Um, so I think that's and that's you know part of of Christian liberty, if you will, as e- that's even explained. It's literally in scripture. I mean, that, that, that happens too. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that I, I, I think that uh, you would, you might, we might want to say that when the state takes upon itself the central, as the centralizing force and of arbit- arbitration of truth in general, uh, they're going to be s- super prone to error. I mean, Hayek, Friedrich Hayek explained this in, in the sense uh, uh, the problem of the knowledge problem uh, that, you know, the reason that socialism fails, for instance, is because there is no way in which the state can set prices uh, logically. It's it, the pricing mechanism does not work if it is just being set from a centralized source because knowledge is not centralized. Knowledge is scattered. It is dis- it is diffused. It is diffused in uh, in a society. Uh, it is not something that is all located in one spot, and not too different per se. Is that you know while we do believe that the that the centrality of truth is God, uh, certainly God you know God we consider to be that that perfect one, the one who knows all. Uh, but as it pertains to Christians interacting together, none of us have an ultimate. Uh, corner on truth and so there's and so even to declare like that the church um let's say that as a sing, as a singular entity what like for instance in in history you know the roman catholic church when it had you know the the greatest expansive uh, hold upon the bulk of christendom uh that centralization of knowledge if you will and, and it's not even entirely proper to say that they they even had that 
uh, fully wrapped up in itself. But it, but like that, the more that we've had uh, a breakup of the of of kind of the hierarchy uh, within the the grander church, the more we've seen uh, peace and prosperity even. Uh, amongst other Christians, and, and even the 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 breadth of theology that allows us to understand God in a variety of different ways, and uh, and help us to see the depth and beauty of who He is. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of on some level I'm dancing around the point here, but I, I guess. But I really what I'm trying to say is that you know centralization of power is almost <laughs> is almost invariably a bad thing even as it pertains to the, the broader church, uh, you know, in general. So I think that there's, there's something to that. And that's not to say that, you know, oh, well, all denominations are, are, you know, completely great and there, there's nothing wrong with any of them or something like that, but rather just to say that like, there's, there is kind of distinct disadvantage um, in trying to even centralize all of what would be considered religious, uh, religious, uh, influence in one location or in one entity. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I definitely have covered that a lot, the centralization versus decentralization aspect and arguments against socialism as far as yeah being able to determine the price value of things in a market when you don't have a market. That definitely yeah. is a problem. <laughs> Um, and I can see how if you have many different denominations within Christianity, how they do, uh, in a sense, keep each other in check. They expand the knowledge of theology and understanding of Scripture and God and all these types of things. And I can see how that is a good thing. Um, going back to the time period just prior to the Reformation, there was a very centralized structure in the church. And there was a movement towards reforming the church. That was the original plan, was just to reform it, to change it, to sure. uh, modify it, get it in line with the way it's supposed to be. And that ended up coming to a break in the church. And so uh, I, I want to hear a little bit from you on um, when is it necessary to have an actual break versus just reform an institution, because we see this with the church historically, and we see the same thing with the state today. You can look at something like secession movements of people that want to break apart some of the powers of the centralized federal government within the state and make them more regional or more local. And I think you would probably be in line with that, at least as a first step. And so um, when is it... Uh, when is it prudent to actually break versus reform the institution? Oh, what a what a tough question! <laughs> you don't you don't you don't pull back from the the the, the hard ones, do you? I try not okay. to, and I, I know there is no set line that you can draw on the sand and say once you cross this line, then you have to break now. But, <laughs> far, but yeah, just no um, farther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in a broad view, at least. Man, it, so long as you can. Like my my goal in any of this would be to to whether it's a you know if the break can be done peacefully, that's a great thing. Uh, it would it would be it's a great uh, it's a great thing when you can uh, recognize that you know we can part our ways at this point and end up with a better relationship than we had. Um, what is what's very problematic at times is that often breaks end up be end up being the you know, the ignition point of violent action. 
Um, and, you know, a good example of this is, you know, the, the civil war, uh, like I, I'm of, you know, I'm, I'm a, of complete convinced belief that there, the civil war was unnecessary. You know, Britain was able to abolish slavery without firing a shot. And yet we somehow deify on some level that the, that the, this, the instance of the civil war as being the, the, this is the reason why we don't have slavery today. Like this is the only way it had to be this way. Well, it didn't have to be this way. Uh, there are plenty of, of other ways that this that could have turned out. It didn't have to involve necessarily a complete, uh, a complete break and in, in, in igniting a war. It could have been done so much better. Uh, that being said, there are other ways in which you know breaks uh, happen that don't require um, that don't require the, the the firing of a shot by any means. A great example of this is just in the last, just literally in the last couple of weeks, we got to see uh, Britain exit the uh, the European Union once and for all. You know, goodness gracious, what a, what an amazing thing to watch! Uh, it, it's it's really quite an, an amazing thing. Brexit's been a is gonna it's gonna pay off. It's and it's a good way of of showing how you can peacefully exit. And like so, I think that's a that's a good thing. So again, I, I feel like I'm kind of dodging around the question, but I'm I feel like breaks are you know as long as they can be accomplished peacefully, and you realize that the at the effect of the break will be one that will accomplish uh, a better relationship. That's a great thing. Uh, if you, if you don't feel like that, you can do that, uh, it, that, that a break would, would not result in a better relationship that it would result, result in violence as a result. Maybe reform is the proper way of doing things. Uh, I can't answer for all history at all times. Uh, but it seems like that my, if our goal is to try and improve our relationships together, as, as a society, uh, that, that we should be seeking to resolve our issues without violence. If either one of the things uh, that we're attempting to do reform or uh, a break would result in violence, then we should probably consider the alternative option. Well, that reminds me of a book that was actually referenced by the very first guest I had on, who was also a libertarian um, in season two, and that would be The Politics of Obedience. It was written by a French author in the 1500s sometime, um, but one of his main arguments was that the reason that the state has this authority over a society, the reason that you can have a few hundred or a few thousand people rule over millions is because the millions give them that authority. And right. his argument is that there should be a peaceful revolution and that all you have to do is withdraw that authority and bam, you have this peaceful revolution, you have success and there is no violence. So um, I imagine you can get on board with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but well, Dempatee was right. I mean, and, yes. and that's what we're describing is that if you can if you can have a break and not have violence, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would also totally agree. Um, however, the challenge there would we can use this historical parallel for the challenge for a good example of it would be that the Reformation started as a nonviolent movement, uh, mostly where you had some people within the Christian faith that believed differently than the current Catholic church. And there were some splits here, and then there were more splits and more splits. And this mostly 
happened peacefully. And this was roughly, I know there are plenty of caveats here, but roughly this was a peaceful revolution within the religion, within Christianity. And you did have success in uh, making this a more decentralized movement and a more decentralized institution. If you look at the church as a whole as being all the different denominations. And so uh, on one hand, that was a good thing from at least the way we are describing here of having a break that is peaceful. But on the other hand, the problem is that oftentimes these peaceful breaks um, historically end up getting co-opted by other forces that do not have the same ideology of a peaceful solution. And instead, they enjoy the use of force to get their own uh, political will accomplished or to get more profits and wealth or whatever their goal is. And we saw that with the Reformation. You end up having these nobles and these different uh, people that were involved in the power structure at the time politically, and they started using force to take over other surrounding territories. And the culmination of this would be the Thirty Years' War, one of the bloodiest times in European history, and the creation out of that of the nation state, at least uh, mostly from a broad perspective here. And sure. so that is my challenge is that if you have, if we're looking at the modern state and using um, this same challenge for the modern state, I think you and I would probably both agree a peaceful break would be a good thing. That the more you can get political power to be more localized, more regional, that that is a good thing. You break away peacefully from the state in those ways. But I guess historically, that doesn't seem to be the way that it actually pans out. And so um, I, I wonder, uh, it's, what I'm thinking of right now is that earlier you had mentioned how centralization, um, having power centralized in one source is always going to be a bad thing just because of what typically happens when you do that. And I would agree, even though centralization should increase efficiency, increase effectiveness, it should be a great thing, but that's not reality. And so I guess if you compare that same challenge to uh, the opposite thing of breaking everything apart, um, ideally, that should be great. And there are ways of doing that completely peacefully within a society. But realistically and historically, it seems that this is usually co-opted by the use of force by some other rival that wants to take more power. So um, is that something that you okay. would say is something that should be watched out for? Well, I think there's some point, there's some clarification that could be made there. And, and for one thing, you know, I think it, I think that it should be it should be pointed out that the centralization that's the that's always the that's almost invariably the bad thing is the centralization of essentially what might be called decision making authority. Uh, that the more that that is centralized into one into one body to one entity, the the worse off that that people become because the, simply it's a socialism problem all over again. You can't you will be able to the, the, the economy that will result is nonsensical because knowledge is distributed and that cannot be centralized. That's that should be that should be certainly emphasized as well as that knowledge cannot be completely centralized. Uh, the only one that knows all is God and that's it. Uh, the state, which it might claim to have all the knowledge, but it doesn't, it can't. Uh, that's, it is a fact of human existence that knowledge is distributed. So there, there's that. Um, the other piece though, is that even as, uh, the church, like you mentioned that, you know, as the church, uh, kind of broke up 
if you will. And there were different, uh, for lack of a better word, we call factions per se, or different belief sets or, or slightly different ways of wanting to interact. The more that that happened, the political portions of those of those communities just wanted to use the religious trappings as part of the justification for what they wanted to do politically. So it wasn't necessarily that uh, that the that the breakup of the church itself uh, was the cause uh, of the um, of the the political wars of those of those years. It it was it was used, however, essentially as marketing collateral. <laughs> it was how they pitched it to their followers, their constituents, to why they should go off and fight. Uh, they, so in other words, they co like you, you use the word co-opted. That's what happened. The co-opting of religion uh, was, was what happened there, not uh, necessarily the, the, uh, the, the principles behind the religion itself. Because think about it. Really, the, 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 wars, the, relig the so-called religious wars of those years weren't really about religion because you can't make somebody believe something that's different from what that's already in their head. You, you can't make them do that. What they were declaring through their, through their violent action was that they were, they were deciding, they wanted to decide who had the, uh, who had the right to use deadly force against each other, who had the political, uh, power in these scenarios, not, not the religious part per se. It was only used essentially as marketing collateral to get what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you would say that the peaceful break was accomplished and that that was done well, um, roughly, but that the co-opting of that is not necessarily something that was of this Reformation movement. It wasn't a part of their ideology. And so although it did happen, it was something that was outside of the movement. So you can't really judge whether the movement should or shouldn't have proceeded from the beginning even if you know that that's a risk because that's yeah. just something that's outside and secondary. Yeah. Cause we're otherwise we're arguing counterfactuals. Now I think there's a, there's a sense in which, and I, I think this is admissible and why we should, why I should mention it here is that there is a sense in, a sense in which, you know, the Catholic church uh, of the, of the time period had a had a bit of a constraining force upon uh, various violent aspects of, of differing societies at the time. So some political entities were restrained through the church on some level. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that that's possible. But it, I don't think it's exactly correct to say, for instance, that, well, once, uh, once the, the breakup of the Roman Catholic Church affairs, then everything just fell apart. Like, I don't think that's, that's quite correct either. Um, yeah. I think you yeah, kind of get where I'm that... going with that. Yeah, yeah, and you said that the church did restrain the use of force in some cases, and yeah. at the same time, they also unleashed the use of force in many cases. So, yeah, yeah there's both sides to that. Yeah, there's both sides, and I think the, the kind of the idea here is that you know, it's it's hard to pin it down on just the one thing because there's counterfactual scenarios that we could bring to bear to try and you know otherwise explain things. Well, I think this would be a good place to end this first half of the interview here. We're going to break it up into two sections, like I've done with most of the other interviews so far. So this concludes the first half of the interview with Norman Horn, and we'll come back next time with the second half of the interview, and that will be the end of it. So just as a heads up to listeners, this interview was actually one of the last interviews that I did in this whole series to introduce season two. But 
I went back and inserted it at this point in time chronologically because it fits so well, in my opinion, with the interview I did with Nathan Gilmore, the Christian humanist, and Patrick Nevy, the Catholic theologian. And I figured I would go ahead and insert this interview here to continue that theme of wrapping up this aspect of looking at things from a more theological point of view and having some religious experts and religious guests on the show. So I am grouping all of those together right here, and that is why you may hear some references in this interview. I know at the very beginning I mentioned that we had done interviews with people related to history and technology. Well, those actually have not aired yet, so uh, don't worry. Those are coming next. But I wanted to give you a heads up so that you were aware of the timing of this interview. I don't think it really causes any issues whatsoever. I think it fits in just fine. But just so you know, that is the timeline for this. And what I'll do is I'll wrap up the second half of the interview in the following episode, and then we'll move on to the next guest. So I hope you have enjoyed this. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support of all kinds. I also do want to mention that I had done an interview with the Libertarian Christian Institute podcast. It wasn't with Norman Horn. It was actually with the other host, Doug. And he interviewed me about this show, about my podcast and why I got into it, how I got into it, what it covers, all these types of things. And that interview aired relatively recently, and I did see a decent uptick in people that were interested and have now gone back and downloaded my show and started listening to our foundation. So thank you, you new listeners. Welcome. If you are listening to this, then you shouldn't be. You should be going back and listening to everything you have not listened to yet, and then finally get to this, because in general, this podcast is chronological, although most episodes do stand alone fairly well. The idea is that it is in chronological order. So go back, listen through season one first, and then start with the beginning of season two and work your way up to this point. So again, if you are hearing this and you're a brand new listener, go back and at least start at the beginning of season two, if not all the way back at the beginning of season one, if you have not done so already. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that there was a review given by one of these new listeners from the Libertarian Christian Institute podcast, and I want to say thank you very much for that review. Uh, There actually aren't very many reviews on this show. There's a few on Apple and a few on various podcatchers and apps that are out there. And so it really does help a whole lot when people take the time to write a little note, and I greatly appreciate it. Um, This most recent review, I don't remember your name. I'm sorry. I don't think it was your real name. Anyway, but you probably know who you are. And you said some very nice things and said you're really enjoying the podcast and that uh, it sounded like you were going back and listening to season one, which is perfect. Exactly what I'm saying to do. So thank you. I just want to thank you specifically for taking the time to write that review. I greatly appreciate that. And anybody else who hasn't done so, please do. If you would take just 30 seconds or a minute, however long it takes you to write just a little sentence or a little paragraph about 
um, how you feel this podcast does and the things that you like about it and that type of stuff. And that really helps people when they're searching for podcasts, they can see, oh, well, this guy said this and this lady said this. And these people think that it really covers these different areas well, and they can determine whether or not this show might be something worth their time or maybe not. So thank you guys very much for that. Thank you for the Patreon supporters. That's another thing. There is a recent Patreon supporter who has just been added recently. I don't even think the first contribution has been processed yet, but I do want to say thank you very much to you as well. That will officially put the support level, the financial support level, over the needed limit just for hosting fees. So now I have my hosting fees covered. And with this added support member, this new patron, I am now able to get an Audible subscription that will be paid for by my patrons. So thank you very much specifically to Alex, that is the new patron that has joined. Um, By the way, I do use this Audible subscription for my research. There are plenty of free books that I can listen to and free podcasts I can listen to, but there's also a lot out there that is not available for free. I I actually don't technically get everything for free. I have a library subscription and I get access to multiple different audiobook apps where I can listen to all different kinds of things and it's not free, but it's pretty cheap and I pay for that myself. Um, But with Audible, I can get at a minimum one book a month that is pretty much anything I want. So I can get very specific and I can really dig into certain aspects of research that I really want to get into. But oftentimes there will be a specific book or a specific author that I just don't have access to. In the past, I've done free subscriptions to Audible under various email addresses and gotten a few books that way when they're absolutely necessary. And I have paid for stuff as well myself, but uh, budget's fairly tight, so I'd rather not do that. And with your support, your very generous support, I am now able to cover both hosting fees and an Audible subscription. So there are a few other fees that I would like to do. There is more research, and every once in a while, I do need some more equipment or more things for my recording and editing and that kind of stuff. So if anybody else um, decides that they would like to financially contribute as well, then I will give you a shout out as well, and I will let you know what that money is going towards so that you are aware and that you're in the loop and that everybody is on board with how I am using this support that you guys are so generously giving. So thank you very much for you. And just overall, thank you for the Libertarian Christian Institute for having me on their show and doing an interview with me as well as coming on this show and doing this interview that I am playing here. So with that, I think I'm going to wrap up here. If you would like to visit the website, there's all kinds of resources there, and the address is in the show notes, as well as any links for Norman Horn or the Libertarian Christian Institute. All of those will be in the show notes as well, so if you're interested, you can click through to that. You can also look on Twitter. If you followed me on Twitter and this podcast handle at Foundations PC, then you would have already known about the interview I did with LCI and you would have been aware of that and seen a link for that. But if you are not following on Twitter, that is just about the only social media that I do. And it's mainly just 
um, for posting things that I think are relevant and funny and links to new episodes and that kind of stuff. So if you're interested, that is in the show notes as well, as well as the link to the Patreon page and everything else. So again, thank you all very much for all of your support of all different kinds. Please come back next time as we finish up the second half of this interview with Norman Horn. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.